God's word. Thank you, Abby. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning that God has given us to come together around his word. Um, we're going to skip the uh, values, if that's okay. I just feel like we need to go right into uh, the word. Um, yeah, last week, Pastor Ray preached, or he followed up on his Easter sermon on how we access the power, the resurrection power that is toward us who believe, and that is through the Holy Spirit. And I look forward to continuing to study more on the Holy Spirit and how we access and walk in the power that Jesus died to give. But today, I, I'm just going to push the pause button on that series so that I can address a topic that has been very much on my heart and my mind. And so if you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke 14. Luke 14, and if you're there, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God, Holy Spirit, would you help us now to see it? Help us, God, to know it. 
Help us, God, to encounter the God who is a consuming fire. The very being in whose hand are our lives, this world, the entire universe. God, we need you. God, I need you. Help me, God, proclaim your truth. And I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear it today. Please, God, please. God, would you open eyes? Would you open ears? And would you open hearts, God, to your truth? God, we recognize that we are not alone in this room. There are angelic beings right now in this room. There are also powers of darkness in this room right now. God, we bind every demonic force, every demonic activity in Jesus' name. And we command you to leave. Go. Because King Jesus reigns here. Because God has dominion over this place. So Lord, show us your glory. Show us your holiness. Show us God your power. And show us what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name. There are a couple of things that have been on my mind these days. Two things that I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, The first is related to my dad, who, as many of you know, went to be with the Lord in February. Um, My dad loved and served Jesus and is now with him and with my mom. And for that, I'm thankful. And I also want to thank all of you who came around me and my family during that time. All your prayers, your love, and your support. It meant so much. Thank you. But both of my parents are gone now. And when you lose your last parent, there's a sense of finality. Or at least that's the way it's been for me. It feels very final. That's the best way I can describe it. And you realize in a whole new way just how transient this life is. That life really is a vapor. And you're confronted with the fact that, man, I'm next. Like, I'm next. It's going to be my turn soon. Before I know it, I'm going to breathe my last here on earth. And in the next breath, I'm going to stand before my maker, my creator, my redeemer, and give an account of my life. And that is an awesome thought. 
And that is very much on my mind these days. That my days on earth truly are numbered. The second thing that I've been thinking a lot about these days is what I shared in my last message. That we are living the last days. I have never been more convinced that Jesus is coming back soon. That we could very well be the generation that ushers in his return, like seriously. Seriously. Guys, I look at all that's happening in our world today. Just the sheer level of godlessness and rebellion. I see all that's taking place in the world that lines up with what scripture says will take place in the last days. Not to mention the fact that the world is going to be reached with the gospel, like I mentioned, in the next 10, 20 years. I'm really starting to believe that we are the last days generation. Guys, I don't think we have a lot of time left. I really don't. But those two things, death and the end of days, are things that are very much on my mind. And that has stirred up in me a greater sense of urgency, both as a follower of Christ and as a pastor. And I've been asking, what would I say? What would I say? What would I preach? If I was just wanting to do God's will and not be concerned about what people thought. What if I just laid all aside my desire to be liked, which is a real desire of mine. What if I just put all that aside? What would I say? And what came to mind is this. And I'm going to put it as plainly as I can. I'm deeply concerned that even though you're sitting in church right now, Even though many of you come out week after week after week. Even though you pray to accept Jesus into your heart at some point in your life, my fear is that some of, you, some of you are on your way to hell and you don't even know it. That is my biggest concern. The level of spiritual deception in the church. People thinking that they're right with God and that they're on their way to heaven when they're not. And the most loving thing for me to do is not to let them keep believing that out of fear that I'm going to offend them. Listen, some of you have been lied to. You've been told that all it takes to be saved is to pray a prayer, even though the Bible never mentions such a prayer. And yet this is what scores of people have been encouraged to do, that as long as they acknowledge certain facts and say certain words, they're Christian. And their salvation is eternally secure. And I'm here to tell you that that is not true. Not according to this book. It's not. Somewhere along the way in our desire to reach as many people as possible for Jesus, we have minimized the magnitude of what it actually means to follow him. 
We were talking about this the other day at our staff meeting. Rev, our, as our executive pastor, is always doing research. And he was sharing how everything right now is about how to get people into church. How do we get more and more people into our churches? And when that's the focus, that's not a bad thing, but when that becomes the focus rather than the exaltation of Christ and the building of the, of the body, when that becomes the focus, you know what happens? A natural tendency, the temptation is to remove or water down anything that's going to get in the way of that. Anything that might turn people off to God. And the result is nothing short of tragic. Our churches today are filled with people who think they're saved from their sin because they're associated with Christ. All the while living life as they so choose on their own terms. In our desire to bring in the world, man, we have dismissed, we have minimized the call of Jesus for total abandonment. Which is what our passage this morning is all about. And what's important for us to know here, guys, is that this is what Jesus was saying to seekers. The text that we just read, he wasn't saying this to people who were wanting to go deeper into God. He was saying this to people who were checking him out. This is Jesus inviting people that are checking him out to follow him for the first time. And this is where we see that the way Jesus dealt with the crowds is so different from the way you and I deal with crowds today. Here's what I mean by that. I'm going to make a confession. I don't like Easter. I know we just celebrated Easter. I don't like Easter, and I don't like Christmas. You're like, what? You're a pastor. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love what those days represent for me as a believer. As a Christian, those days mean everything to me. The part of Easter and Christmas that I hate is the stress I feel whenever I have to preach on those days, and I'm not the only one. Right, Ray? Thousands of pastors feel this. But the stress comes from the fact that people who normally don't show up to church show up. And I think to myself, okay, I got one shot. This is my one shot to tell these people about God and if I'm good enough, if I'm really good, if I package my sermon just right, if they like it, if they like what I have to say, maybe they'll come back. That's how I think. And that's the stress I feel and hate. But Jesus never stressed out like that. In fact, when he saw the crowds, he didn't get excited like we do. He got uneasy. Because he knew why they were coming to him. Because they could get a healing. Because they could get their stomachs filled. And that's why whenever there's a large crowd, Jesus employs not a growth strategy, but a reduction strategy. He's always trying to thin the ranks. He's constantly trying to separate the curious from the serious. And one thing that stands out in the way Jesus handled the crowds is that he was constantly forcing them to choose. Are you going to follow me or not? And if you're going to follow me, are you going to follow me on my terms? And our text today is all about following Jesus on his terms. Guys, this is discipleship to Jesus according to Jesus. And on that note, something important that I want to point out is that the invitation, listen, 
The invitation is to become a disciple, not a Christian. The invitation Jesus is making here is not to be a Christian, but a disciple. You're going to see in the text that there are only two categories, the crowds and disciples. That's it. The problem today is that we've created a whole new category called Christian. Now, I got no problem with the term, I am one. I identify as one. I'm a Christian. But the problem is that it has come to mean a whole lot of different things to to different people today. More specifically, you can be a Christian today without being a disciple. But I want to tell you that biblically, there is no third category. The word Christian is mentioned three times in the entire New Testament. And every time it's mentioned, there's a negative connotation. The word disciple is mentioned 268 times. You are either a disciple of Jesus. Hear me. You are either a disciple of Jesus or you're part of the crowd. That's it. Dallas Willard said this. The greatest issue. He says the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. And that is a call to discipleship that Jesus is issuing here in Luke 14. And we see the first term in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How's that for an opener? You want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? You got to hate your family. What if we said that on Easter? What if we said that on Christmas? Can you imagine? People would be like, what? This church is out of its mind. But that's exactly what Jesus says. Now, what does he mean by this? And before we answer that, let me, let me say this. The temptation when it comes to passages like this is to try to soften his words. Like, he didn't really mean that. And why do we do that? We do that a lot. We do that because if we took him at his word, we know that there are radical implications for our lives. But let's not do that here. Let's let Jesus say exactly what he meant to say. And when he says you must hate your family, we know that he's not telling us to have contempt or disdain for the people closest to us. We know that because elsewhere in the Bible, we are commanded by God himself to honor our parents, right? We are told to love our wives, to respect our husbands. We are told to love and nurture our children. So that is not, so Jesus here is not contradicting his word. What he's doing is using strong language to communicate and force the very essence of what it means to follow him. And what he said in Matthew 10, 37 sheds light on what he means here. He said in that text, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That clarifies things, does it not? Jesus is not telling us to literally hate our family. What he's calling for here is our ultimate allegiance. What he's telling us is that to be a disciple means that he occupies a central place in our hearts. 
To be a disciple of his means that there's nothing in this world, no one, that we are more devoted to him. Not our mom, not our dad, not our spouse, not even our kids. No one. Jesus says, your love for me, your love for me is to be so superior to all other loves in your life that it makes your love for them look like hate. I love how Jeff Robinson put it. He said, we may be scandalized by the hate speech, but I suspect suspect in stumbling over Jesus' plain talk, we can miss the real scandal of this text. There will be rivals warring for supremacy over the throne of our hearts. But our love for King Jesus must defeat everyone. That's good. There are all kinds of rivals. There are all kinds of rivals warring for the supremacy, warring to occupy the throne of our hearts. But our love for King Jesus must defeat every single one. Jesus says, this is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is one who has given their ultimate allegiance, their greatest devotion, their superior love to him. And guys, this isn't anything new, right? What Jesus demands here is not something new. No, this has been the call of God to his people from the very beginning. Case in point, Abraham. God gave Abraham and Sarah their first son, when they were senior citizens. After waiting 25 years, God finally gives them the son of promise. And Isaac is the apple of Abraham's eye. He is his father's pride and joy and all of Abraham's hopes and dreams. All of his affections are centered on this child. And you know what happens next. God tells Abraham to do the unthinkable. Take your son, your only son whom you love. Taking him up, Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him there as an act of worship to me. And we are told that God did this to test Abraham. And why does God test his people? Why does God test you and me? Is it because he doesn't know what we're going to do and so he wants to find out? No, that's not why. God is omniscient. That means he has total knowledge of everything. God knows every decision we will ever make. Then why does he test his people? Here's why. To show us ourselves. God doesn't test us for him. He, shows, he tests us for us. To show us what's in our hearts. More specifically, to show us what our hearts love. And this is what Jesus did with the rich young ruler, right? He comes to him one day, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a test. Go sell all that you have. Everything you have, go sell it. Give the money to the poor and you can follow him. To show the man that despite what he says, despite what he proclaims, his heart belonged not to God. His heart belonged to money. That's what he really loved. That's Abraham's test. Would he love Isaac more than God? Would he love the gift more than the giver himself? Now, you and I, we know how the story ends. Abraham obeys. He obeys God. And just as he's about to plunge the knife into his son, God stops him. Stop. And he provides a ram to sacrifice in Isaac's place. 
But Abraham's test illustrates powerfully what Jesus is driving at here. Your, your spouse, your parents, your friends, your child are good gifts from my hand. They are. But do you love me more than these? Do you love me more? than the gifts that I have given you. And men and women, that's a question that lies before us today. That's a question people all over the world are having to answer right now. Right now, there are people all across the globe that are choosing to love and follow Jesus at the cost of their own family. People like City. City opened the door of her family's home, tired and ready to rest after work. But as soon as she walked inside, her mother was waiting with a paper in her hand and a very angry look on her face. Where did you get this? City's heart sank. She knew that nothing would be the same after this. The paper in her mother's hand was a devotion she had read that morning something she had been reading every morning since she put her trust in Christ as Savior. Mom, please, City began. But she was not allowed to finish. Why are you reading this? It is shameful. You are a Muslim. You must not be reading this. Soon her father came into the room to see what was happening. Her mother shoved the paper in his face and his expression soured. Explain this to me now. Her father demanded, why are you reading this? You are, are you still a Muslim? It had been a month since City decided to leave Islam to follow Jesus. She kept it a secret from her Muslim family, knowing that they would be angry if they find, found out. But the moment had come for her to confess her faith in Christ and face whatever her family would do to her. The next thing she knew, pain shot across her jaw as she fell to the floor. Her father was yelling at her, but she couldn't hear what he had to say over it ringing in her ears. You will not be a Christian. We will put you back on the right path again. In the weeks that followed, City's life was turned upside down. Her family reported her to the religious police and she was dragged to place after place in attempts to get her to recant her decision to follow Christ. Her family even took her to the most powerful religious medium to make her come back to Islam. She was hit repeatedly in an attempt to beat the demons out of her. He gave her no food and made her drink her urine. But no matter what the medium did, he could not make her renounce Christ. In all my life, these methods have worked, the medium said to her. Why, why won't this work with you? Jesus lives in me, City answered. You can kill my body, but my soul will go to God. After many more tries, the medium gave up, and City's parents had no other plan. They would not allow her to leave home and plan to keep her there until she agreed to return to Islam. City knew that her life could not continue this way. But one night before going to sleep, she prayed for God to show her how to escape. 
And as she slept, city cleans that Jesus visited her in a dream, showing her the way out of her house. She woke up early the next morning before anyone else, opened the front door, looked once behind her, and ran as fast as she could through her neighborhood and escaped. City has had no contact with her family since that day. Following Jesus cost City her family. Stories like hers are commonplace all over the world. People all over the world are choosing to follow Jesus at the cost of the people that mean most to them. Because they understand that the call of discipleship is a call to give Jesus their ultimate allegiance, their greatest devotion, their superior love. See, these people understand, they hear his words. When he said, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. This is Jesus. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then that's when he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are we hearing this, church? Are we really hearing this? Jesus says, if you love your parents more than me, listen, listen, listen. He says, if you as a parent love your child more than me, you're not worthy of me. These are his words, not mine. Oh, what a vastly different picture than the one we're given in our churches today where Jesus is going, I'll take whatever you give me. Whatever you can spare after you first give to your family is good with me. And the great travesty today is that we got people in our churches who think God should be happy that they gave him anything at all. He should be happy that I showed up. I'm a busy man. He should be happy that I gave an offering. I got bills to pay. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you got to give me everything. I'm to occupy the central place in your life. Your parents, as wonderful as they are, your spouse, as grateful as you are, your child, as much as you love that child, as precious as your child is, they were never meant to have the greatest claim to your heart. Jesus says, I was. That's term number one. You see the second term in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is one of the most misunderstood, misapplied statements in all of scripture. People today talk about carrying one's cross like, my husband's such a loser. I'm stuck in a bad marriage. My boss is the worst. I hate my job, but that's a cross I have to bear. No, it's not. Stop it. That is not at all what Jesus has in mind here. When he spoke these words, his audience knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that the only time a person would carry a cross is when he was on his way to his execution. 
Carrying a cross meant that you were a dead man walking. And all your plans, all your dreams, all your desires, all your rights are relinquished. Life as you knew it was over. Your life was no longer yours and now belonged to Rome. That's what it meant to carry one's cross. That means, listen, if you're a Christian, not the watered-down version of what it means to be Christian today, but if you're a Christian as Jesus defines a disciple, that means you are dead. You are dead to yourself. Your plans, your dreams, your wants and desires outside of him. Life as you know it is over. Your life is no longer yours. It belongs to him. And that's what Paul was saying when he said in Galatians 2.24, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I'm dead. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he echoes that same sentiment in Galatians, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, when he says, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And the price being the precious blood of Christ, so you are not your own. That is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple. You are not your own. You are dead. You die to yourself. And Jesus, who died to make you live, becomes your life. That is what it means to be a disciple. In 1948, Whitaker Chambers, a former communist, went before a New York grand jury to bear witness against the communistic involvement of one of the government's highest officials, Alger Hiss. A juror asked Mr. Chambers, what does it mean to be a communist? He answered the question by sharing about the three heroes he had when he was a communist. The first was a Polish political prisoner in Warsaw who insisted on cleaning the bathrooms because he felt that the most privileged member of any community should take it upon himself the lowliest tasks. That's a Chambers as what it means to be a communist. His second hero was a Russian who was put in a Siberian prison camp where political prisoners were routinely beaten. He protested the inhumane act, but to no avail. Finally, he drenched himself in kerosene, set himself on fire, and burned to death. To revolt against the injustice toward his fellow prisoners, that's at chambers as what it means to be communist. His third and final hero was a German Jew who was captured and court-martialed during a revolt in Bavaria. When the judge told him, you are now under the sentence of death, he answered, no, you are wrong. We communists are always under the sentence of death. That, said Chambers, is what it means to be a communist. And that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who is always under the sentence of death. In a world where everything revolves around the self, love yourself, promote yourself, protect yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, take 
take pictures of herself and post it. Jesus says, slay yourself. Slay yourself. That's what it means to be a disciple. It is, it's a dying to that kind of life. Let's just put everything on the table, okay? You and I live in a culture that is deeply committed to comfort, safety, and ease. We are committed with everything that we are in this world to comfort, safety, and ease. And that shouldn't surprise us because if this life is all there is, then that should be your goal. You should make your life as nice and as comfortable as possible. So everything in our world, everything in our society is geared towards that. Get more, have more, build bigger barns. Minimize risk, maximize reward, live your best life now. That's what the good life is according to our world. What's alarming is that the church today looks no different. We have the same vision of what the good life is. We go after the same things. We are just as committed to comfort, safety, and ease as the world. You see the danger here. Hear me, please. Danger is that you can have all these things. A good family, a nice job, a nice house. You can come out to church week after week after week. You can live a good moral life. You can have all these things and still not have Christ. I'm not asking if you believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for the sins of the world. James says even the demons believe that. I'm not asking if you're coming out to church or if you're serving or if you're tithing. I'm not asking if you get emotional when you sing praise songs. I'm not asking that. I'm asking you, is Christ your life? Is Jesus your life? Is he the reason you live really? Is he the reason you work? Is he the reason you go to school? Is he the reason you're married or want to get married? Is Jesus the reason you have kids? To raise up the next generation to know and love and treasure Christ? Or are you raising them to think and live just like the world? You know what the greatest barrier to missions is? It's parents. It's not the lack of funds. It's not the lack of calling. God is calling his people to go. But it's moms and dads that are standing in the way of their sons and daughters going. In fact, that reminds me, years ago I had a mom coming to me and asking to meet with me. And she wanted to meet with me to talk me into talking her son out of going out on missions because she was afraid that it would disrupt her plans of him going to medical school. For real. I couldn't believe what she was saying. I said, 
are you kidding me? I can't do that. I won't do that. Parents, hear me. Parents, hear me. If your child should come to you one day and say, Mom, Dad, if you're called by God to go and take the gospel, well, the gospel is not known. I hope to God, I hope to God that you would support them and bless them and pray for them and rejoice. Rejoice that your child's heart beats after God's. I hope to God, I hope to God that you will not try to stand in the way because it's too dangerous. And if that is your perspective, you may call yourself a Christian, but you are not following Christ. Because to follow Christ is to live the crucified life. How do you make decisions? When you make decisions, what, what car to drive, what house to buy or rent, what job to work at, what city to live in, how do you make those decisions? Is it like the world where you go, I, I want that, I like that, oh, that looks nice. The Bible doesn't say it's sinful, right? So I'm just going to do it. Or do you say, God, my life is yours. Every part, everything is yours. So it's not about what I want, God. It's about what you want for me. So show me what you want me to do. That's what I'll do. Is that how you make decisions? Because men and women, that's what it means to live the crucified life. All of this is a huge claim to authority in your life. Make no mistake. Jesus here makes bold, radical demands. You want to follow me? Then you got to love me with a superior love that makes all the other loves look in your life look like hate. You want to follow me? Then you got to take up a cross and you got you to die to yourself every single day. And then he says, consider carefully if you're willing to do that. He says, think it through. Don't make any commitments. Don't make any decisions until you have counted the cost of what it actually means to follow me. And he gives a couple of illustrations to drive the point home. The first is the person who wants to build a tower. Jesus says, if he starts building it, he's got, before he starts building, he's got to know if he has the funds to finish it, right? Because if he starts building it and runs out of money or realizes, man, I don't have enough money to complete it, then everyone walking by is going to mock him and call him a fool. Reminds me of, you guys know what's happening in China? You have all these half-built towers. You have entire towns in China right now that are, that are like ghost towns. They're all, all half-built risers. Because they started building it, but they ran out of money because of the economic downturn. The second is a king who's about to go to war. And Jesus, before he declares war, he, he better know if his army is able to defeat the other army before he declares war. Because once you declare war, it's on. It's life and death. There is no just kidding. I take it back. I didn't really mean it. What's Jesus warning against here? He's warning against making hasty emotional decisions to follow him. He's warning against people coming to him because Jesus can fix my marriage. Because he can bless me financially. 
Because Jesus can heal my body. Because Jesus can take me to heaven when I die. Jesus says, don't come to me for that. You come to me for me. Because you found treasure in me. Because here's the deal. Following me is going to cost you. It's going to cost you big. The cost is going to be high. The cost is going to be great. At some point, at some point, following me is going to make life harder, not easier. It's going to take you in the opposite direction at times of where you're wanting to go. The question is, are you going to follow me then? Are you going to follow me when obedience to me leads you away from the things that you want in this world? Are you going to follow me even if I don't give you a healing? Even if I don't give you a house? Even if I don't give you a spouse? Even then, are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow me if I cost you your job? If standing for me and my truth, if it costs your dream job, are you, are you going to follow me even then? Are you going to follow me even if that means your kids don't get what all the other kids have? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow me when the world starts turning on you and hates on you because of me? Because it's coming. It's coming. I'm telling you, it's going to get bad. Mark my words, church, it's about to get real bad. It's going to get really hard to be a Christian in this world. We ain't seen nothing yet. It's coming. Jesus is before the end. It's going to get really, really bad. Jesus says, are you going to follow me then? Are you going to go the distance? Are you ready to go the full distance with me? If you're not, then don't bother. Again, these are his words, not mine. If you're not willing, then don't bother. You cannot be my disciple. And the sad truth is that, man, in our churches here in America, our churches are full, they're filled with half-built towers and half-fought battles. People who made commitments, people who prayed a prayer, people who prayed to accept Jesus into their hearts without actually counting the cost of what it actually means to follow him. And so they never finished what they started. In case the people still weren't getting what he was saying, Jesus says finally in verse 33, so therefore any one of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's no good way to soften this statement, so we're just going to take it as it is, okay? Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Really? Really? Are you serious about following me? Then you got to lay it all down. You got to give up everything. It's a crazy demand. There's this man standing in front of you saying, you want to follow me? You want me? You got to give it all up. Every relationship, every dream, 
every plan, every desire, every possession, every dollar. You got to lay it all down. It's all mine. Guys, is it, is, is it any wonder why when Jesus ascended into heaven, he only had 120 disciples? Think about that. Out of thousands upon thousands of people that, that followed him, I mean, he's had, he had tens of thousands of people coming to him all, at any single time. Out of the thousands of people that came to him, when he went back to the Father, he only had, according to Acts 1.15, 120 disciples, which means the vast majority of people that came to him went away from him. What is that, 99.99%? All those people that came to him said, Jesus, I'm not willing to pay the cost. I'm not willing to be put out of the synagogue for you. I'm not willing to be rejected by my parents for you. Jesus, you're just not worth it to me. That's what those people said. But for those 120, and for the many that came after them, he was worth it. He was worth it. And Jesus is worth it to many of us in this room. And the day, listen, the day you see Jesus and you see him worthy of you losing everything for, the day you see that he is worth losing everything for is the day you become a disciple. The day you see that Jesus is worth losing everything for is the day you become a disciple. You see, the reason Jesus had no problem making such bold, radical demands is because he knew who he was and what he offered. And he knew that what we get in him, what we gain in him is better than anything we would have to give up in this world. You know why Jesus demanded a superior love? The reason he demands a superior love is because you gain a superior love in him. In Christ, you gain a love that is deeper and greater and more fulfilling than any other love that exists in the world. The love of a lover, the love of a child, the love of a friend, the love of a parent, as wonderful as they are, all pale in comparison to the love of God in Christ. There simply is no greater love than the love that Christ gives. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Can I get an amen from somebody? The reason Jesus demands that we die to ourselves, that we take up the cross and die is because he knows that when we start dying to ourselves is when we will start living. It is only when we lose our life for his sake that we find it. And the reason Jesus demands that we give up everything for him is because in him we gain a savior that has given up everything for us. He left the glories of heaven for us. God, the eternal God, took on human flesh for us. And he lived the life that we should have lived. 
and he died the death that we should have died. He hung on the cross for your sins, for your sins and mine. You see, I know what I was. I know what I was before he found me. I was a wretched, miserable, sinful creature who deserved to die. I deserved to spend eternity in hell for my crimes against God, for rebelling, for rebelling against the God who made me for, my, for himself. I deserve to be crushed under the weight of his holiness and majesty. That's what I deserved. But God... But God, being rich in mercy and abounding in love, even when I was dead in my trespasses, made me alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace, I've been saved. I am who I am, and I have all that I have, all because of grace. And when I see what God has done, when I see what God has done for me, when I see that what he has spared of Abraham, he did not spare of himself. He slayed his own son, his own beloved son. He slayed him, he sacrificed him for a sinner like me. And when you get that, you see that total surrender is no longer an option. When you see what God in Christ has done for you, oh, you recognize that the only fitting response, the only appropriate response to that kind of love, that kind of mercy, is complete surrender, complete abandonment to that God who in mercy called your name. And my question today is, do you hear him calling you? Do you hear his voice? Do you know his mercy? Do you know his love? Have you tasted and have seen that the Lord is good? To see this life this life that Jesus talks about here, all it is is it's an outworking of that. It is a life that is led in response to the goodness of God that we have come to know. Because here's what can't happen. Here's what can't happen. You cannot walk out of here today thinking, gosh, I got to love God more. I definitely love my kids more than God. God, I, I got to love God more. Or I got to die to myself more. And go out and start trying to be more like that. I'm telling you right now, that is not going to work. I'm telling you right now, that is not going to work because all that is is religious change. You know when real change happens? Not when you resolve to love God more, but when you start believing the love that God has for you. Did you get that? You will live like this. Not when you start trying harder. Not when you resolve to love God more, but when you start believing the love that God has for you. And this is what we see all throughout the Bible. Believing rightly always precedes behaving rightly. And isn't that what 1 John 4.19 tells us? We love. We love. Not because we decide to muster up love, but because what? 
because he has first loved us. It's always the order. He loved us in Christ. And because we have come to know our, that love, because we have tasted that love, our actions change. You know why? Because we have changed. Our hearts have changed. And that's when we come to realize that the only fitting response to, to that kind of love, that kind of God, is absolute surrender. Men and women, this is discipleship to Jesus. Please hear me. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus according to Jesus. Make no mistake, the cost is high, the cost is great. The path that you and I are to walk down is a difficult road. It's a road that is marked with suffering and loss. If you're on that road, you're not going to be liked. It's a way that's hated by many. But what I'm telling you today when I'm praying God would open your eyes to see is that it's worth it. It's worth it. More specifically, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. He is. Jesus is worth losing everything for. I close with what David Platt writes in his book, Radical, about a girl named Janessa Wells. Janessa was a young woman fresh out of college with all the potential in the world. With many opportunities before, she decided to go to the Middle East among people who had never heard the gospel. Before she went, Janessa wrote to her friends, I could give up on going overseas and get married and become a music teacher. All of this is very noble, and to be quite honest, Sounds good to me. But more than I want a husband, and more than I want comfort, I need to tell others of Jesus. Janessa wound up working among the Egyptians with Palestinians in a refugee camp in Jordan, with Muslims in France, and with Bedouins in the desert. Following all this, she wrote, I honestly would not want to be anywhere but here where God has put me. He gives me more than I can imagine. Six months later, in her last email home, she wrote, it seems that everything we do comes down to one thing, his glory. I pray that all of our lives reflect that. Two weeks later, after she wrote those words, Janessa died in a bus accident in the pre-dawn darkness of Egypt's Sinai Desert. Platt continues, most people in our culture look upon this story as a tragedy. A young woman spending the last days of her life in the remote Egyptian desert only to die in a bus accident? Think of all the potential she had. Think of all she could have accomplished. Think of all she could have done if she had just not gone. 
but the perspective of Christ is much different. According to Matthew 10, the story of Janessa Wells is not a story of tragedy, but a story of reward. Reward? How can a young woman's dying in the desert on the other side of the world be a reward? Here's how. In the instant Janessa breathed her last in Egypt's Sinai desert, she was ushered into the presence of Christ. There she had glimpsed his glory in an amazing beauty that you and I cannot begin to fathom. And do you know where Janessa Wells is today? She is in the same place. Do you know where Janessa Wells will be 10 billion years from now? In the same place, beholding the great glory of God and experiencing reward that comes to those who believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Rest assured, Janessa does not regret missing one moment of the American dream in light of the reward she now experiences. Amen. That is the reward of a disciple. That will be our reward as well. For all who believe, for all who believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain, Jesus himself will be our great reward. And he is worth losing everything in this world for. Everything. Do you know I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you had an experience in high school. I don't care who your parents are, who your grandparents are, who your uncles are. I don't care if you have pastors in your family. I don't care. And I say that in love. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know his love? Do you know his grace and his mercy? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If you don't, maybe today you're like, man, I don't know if I do. I don't know if, I honestly don't know. Oh, don't leave this room without knowing. Because Jesus said in Matthew 7, on that day, all the peoples are gathered before him. There will be many who say, Lord, Lord. Lord. And Jesus is going to say to them, to many, many depart from me 
before I never knew you. Wait, Jesus, wait. I prophesied in your name. Jesus, I, I served in your name. Jesus, I led people in your name. Jesus, I did miracles in your name. And to them, he will say, depart from me. Because I never knew you. You thought you knew me, but I never knew you because your heart never belonged to me. Your life was never mine. Jesus said many will be in that category. Again, you are either part of the crowd or you're a disciple. There is no third category. So let me just invite you right now just to Just go before God. Will you just Oh guys, this is serious. Some of you need to get right with God. Some of you need to surrender. Because you've been half stubborn. One foot in, one foot out. It's time to go all in. I'm not asking you to pray some prayer. There is no such prayer in the Bible. You know what you find in the Bible? Two things. Repent and believe. That's all you see. Time after time after time after time after time. Repent and believe. Repent. Turn. Turn from your ways. Renounce your ways. Turn from the life you've been living. And you turn to Christ. And you believe all that he has done for you. The love that he has shown you through his life and through the cross. And you believe it. By faith, you believe it. And in faith, you come. You lay it all down and say, God, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what, the, what it means for me and my future. But all I know is that you are God and I'm not. And today I bend my knee to your lordship. I urge you, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Give your life to Christ. come to him in full surrender if you have to do that now do that now just surrender if the Lord is bringing something to your mind some for some of you God is bringing something to your mind right now something that you are gripping so tight something that you are refusing to let go something you're saying God you can touch every other part but not this God is bringing some of those things to your mind right now Oh, friend, I just want to encourage you to trust him. Trust him. He loves you. He loves you more than you could know. And he intends the very best for you. Will you let that go, trusting, believing that he loves you more than you can imagine and that his plans for you are good? 
So let me just invite you right now. Just, we're just going to take our time right now. Just take this moment, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, we just, just pray. Just do business with God. Wherever you may be, maybe you're like, man, I'm, I'm part of the crowd. Maybe you're like, I'm not sure. Or maybe you know I am a disciple. Wherever you are, just go before him. Thank you, God, of what you spared of Abraham. You didn't spare yourself. You slayed your own son. You sacrificed your beloved son, the prize of heaven, for sinners like us. I see what you have done. I realize that the only proper response is total surrender to the God who has loved me like that. God, I pray that you would open our eyes. God, would you awaken our hearts? God, please stir the heart of our people. Help us, God, to realize that, man, this is not a game. Eternity is at stake. 
Heaven and hell is at stake. Jesus, help us to see what's truly at stake here. And that though many are called, only a few will actually follow. Jesus, you said it, that the road that is broad has a whole lot of people on it. But the road that leads to heaven is narrow. And Lord, you said only a few find it. Only a few. Jesus, that strikes fear in my heart. That only a few. That many in our churches will not. God, please don't let that be true of this church. God, please. Father, everyone within the sound of my voice, God, please. Open the eyes of their hearts. Awaken their hearts to you, God. And I pray, God, that in your mercy and your kindness that you would bring them to repentance. God, some of us have forgotten your love. Some of us have forgotten your mercy. Some of us have forgotten how good we have it. God, remind us again. Take us back to that first love. Take us, God, to that place when we first fell in love with you, God. Please take us back to that place. God, would you rekindle? Would you rekindle, God, in our hearts a love for you that makes every other love in our lives look like hate? God, would you do that? Would you do that, God? Because we know we can't do this on our own. Holy Spirit, you have to enable. You have to do that in us. And so, Lord, we ask, God, that you would pour out your spirit upon us. Holy Spirit, have your, have your way. And God, I pray that you would purify our hearts. Refine our hearts, God, please. Burn away, God, burn away, cut away everything that is not of you. Everything that is not of you, everything that is keeping us, God, from walking in step with you. Give us, God, the grace now to repent. That in you we might live and live abundantly. That in you, Jesus, we will live forevermore. God, we praise you. Praise you, God, for loving us enough to tell us the truth, even when it's hard. Thank you, God, for loving us like the way you do. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Amen. Can we stand? Let's worship our King.